Welcome to today's Church Central podcast. We're a family of churches across Birmingham. To find out more, head to churchcentral.org.uk. It's a fantastic opportunity to be able to speak uh, at any time on a Sunday morning uh, on God's Word, but particularly at a Baptism Sunday, uh, seeing Phoebe and Dave get baptised. Just kind of an aside, that obviously getting to hear their stories, such a privilege to be able to hear people talk just deeply and honestly about their stories. I mean, I think it's such a wonderful privilege. Thank you so much, guys, for being so honest and candid with us. Um, really liked it. Um, it's a wonderful thing. And it's um, today what's happening is, uh, is kind of coordinated, well, not coordinated with this passage. We were planning to pe- preach on this, um, this passage before we knew it's baptisms today. Um, but I think this passage is a, a wonderful passage for baptism, although it might not seem so immediately. I mean, just cast your mind back, you might be thinking, baptism, where did that fit into all that stuff about rude jokes and lying and stealing? I don't know how that worked out. Well, let's first of all, I'll, I'll come to that. Hopefully I'll be able to explain that, that clearly. But let's um, first think about what we're going to be doing in about half an hour with the baptisms. And then maybe you might be able to link that in with what we've just read. What we're going to do in about half an hour is we're going to take uh, Dave and Phoebe outside into the car park. And uh, we have a baptism pool or otherwise called in parlance of our times, a paddling pool. And we will be sitting them in said paddling pool with water in, pushing them under the water and then pulling them out of the water. I imagine at that point there may well be some cheering or general joviality and celebration. Probably. Maybe not. I don't know. Looking around, but yeah, probably. That's what's going to happen. Now, what is going on? Why do we do that? Um, Well, the reason we do it in the car park is because the swimming pool is always hard to book. That's one reason. But no, the, the whole thing itself. Um, we, we do it because actually, in a strange way, it represents a, a, a resurrection is what we're acting out during baptism. The water represents death or a grave. And as we pull uh, Phoebe and Dave out of the water, what we're pull, doing is pulling them out from death into new life. That's what that, that action uh, represents. From death to new life. Now, I wonder if you've got the passage in front of you. And just to be clear, it's a long passage. It would be handy if you've got a Bible, physical Bible, or a phone with the Bible on. Just keep, keep looking, because I'm going to be jumping around all over the place in this. Some will come up here, uh, but it would be good just to kind of follow along to see where it's going. But in that passage, which there's a bit like that, and it's right at the end. And the end of the passage was this. Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And this bit here, in your Bibles, it's in sort of speech marks. And most commentators would say this bit is an excerpt from a very, very early Christian hymn. So a song the very first Christians would have sung in their services, a bit like the ones uh, today, I imagine. They wouldn't have had a bassist with a beanie like Jude, but kind of, kind of similar in that way. Um, and actually, not just any old Christian hymn, most commentators would say this is a hymn that was, would have been sung in the first century at baptisms. And it was as if the the congregation was kind of commentating on what was happening. So as the person goes under the water, what's happening, they're calling to them. The voice of God through the congregation, Awake, O sleeper, rise up from the dead, and Christ will give you light. And as they come up, they're acting out that awakening, uh, that receiving, walking into the light of Jesus. I guess there's a load of ideas behind this that I guess if you don't know, it might sound very foreign to you. But the idea behind it is that the Bible would present life without Jesus as a kind of death. It's a kind of death. It's it's a living, but it's a living that is not life as it should be. A kind of sleepwalking through life. This image of sleep comes in as well. 
I think we'd use similar phrases sometimes. If we found someone who was so completely oblivious to their surroundings that they didn't really pay any attention to what was important around them, you might say, don't worry about them. They're dead to the world. It would be a similar sort of idea. We're dead in the way we live. The Bible presents this not just for some people's, how they are, but all of us in our natural state that would describe us all. In the passage we've just read, uh, this is what Paul says, and he describes this state, I think, very, very well. He says, they are hopelessly confused. And he's talking about the, the non-Jews, the Gentiles of his time, but this, the Bible would apply this to everyone. They are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives, far from the life, that's death again, because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. It's an image of death. Another image that's thrown in here, which is a very similar image, is the image of darkness. I think we can understand this one even more. In the darkness, what happens? What's the problem with darkness? Well, in the darkness, you get lost, don't you? You get lost in darkness. You get afraid in darkness. In the darkness, you can't really get any grasp on what's happening around you. You kind of just have to guess. And so what we need then in the darkness is light. And what we need in death is new life. And, the, and baptism is an acting out of someone saying, I want to step into that light. I want to step into that new life in Jesus. But when we say then that these two are embracing new life today, I guess a question must come, which is, okay then, but what does that look like? On the ground, practically, what does new life in Jesus look like? New life. It sounds really, really exciting. But if I'm honest, it sounds also a bit like a motivational slogan that you need a bit more. What makes new life anything from just being a platitude to something actually that matters? Kind of you could take this as a bit like the kind of New Year slogan people would often say, New Year, new you. You think, whoa, that's snappy. I like that. That's really good. Yeah, it's a new me. But then you go, well, what does new me look like? Well, I don't know. Who cares? Like, I don't know. Get a vegetarian diet or go fishing once a month or take up exercise. I mean, it, it could be anything. You're left in this kind of, kind of situation where you're like, yeah, it sounded really motivational and fist-pumping. New life! But you don't know actually what that new life looks like. And it could just end up being that slogan, that platitude. Well, I think then here is where the rest of this passage comes in really helpfully for us in this context. If you want to know what new life is that Dave and Phoebe are stepping in today, but that all Christians would say that we want to live, well, you see it in the passage. If you like, it's the small print is in the passage. New life, what does it look like? Well, here's the definition. Here's, well, at least part of the definition. Here's the small print of what new life would look like. And I, I don't know about you, but I, don't, I think most people, I think I do know about you on this one, nobody enjoys reading the small print, do they? It's just, you just don't bother. I, I think for a different reason... The small print of this passage, I don't think a lot of it we like reading too. Small print on a, on a, normally is just a bit boring. Here, there is a challenge. When it gets specific, there is a challenge to it that's much more challenging. This new life, woohoo, how exciting, fist pumping, celebrate, let's go home. Well, there's a challenge in the small print in this passage and the definition of this life that's given. I wonder if you could clock it already. Again, a lot of words that we read, you might have it open in front of you, but as you skim down and say, okay, new life is what's in this passage, you might be starting to feel a little bit concerned for Dave and for Phoebe today. What is it that they're signing up to today? I don't know if they're feeling a little bit concerned today. Because the bits that jumped out of me when I first read this passage were a whole load of rules. Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't get angry. Don't have sex with people you shouldn't have sex with. And while you're at it, don't even make any rude jokes. Well, 
<laughs> some life, thanks. You should have told me this before, that Dave and Phoebe are saying. Um, and the first thought could be that we've been spinning this new life thing in Jesus, but actually all we're doing is saying, new life, now the rules to live by. And it's not freedom. It sounded like freedom when we were fist pumping and singing and getting excited, but actually it's just a life of restriction and pressure. And if that were the case, really, there would be very, very little to reason to celebrate today. But good news. I can't, where are Dave and Phoebe? I, can't, I, can't, I need to clock them because I'll talk about them every now and again. They're around somewhere. Yeah, Phoebe's there and Dave's hiding in the corner. Okay, cool. Good news, guys, just so you know. That is not uh, what this passage is telling us about good life in Jesus. Woo-hoo. Um, and I wouldn't spend the rest of our time this morning really uh, kind of putting those moral instructions, if you want, into context and explaining why they really do help to define a life that we really can call life and that's worth getting excited about. And this is going to be relevant for Dave and for Phoebe, but this is also going to be relevant to any of you who have decided you want to follow Jesus and step into his new life, whether you were, uh, were baptized a long time ago, or chose to do that a long time ago, or quite recently. And I hope also, if you're here today and uh, you're not a Christian, and you've never been baptized, maybe you'd be here thinking, I don't ever want to get baptized, thank you very much. I hope this will be helpful for you as well. Not just, I hope, to kind of show you what makes Christians tick, although that would be of some value, but I hope it whets your appetite a little bit to think, you know what, I might want something of that new life too. And if that was the case, we'd love to chat more about what that might look like later. So just to be really clear where we're going, in about 15 minutes, 15, 20, I reckon, I'm going to go through this passage again, a little bits of it. I'm going to read out the tricky bits, the don't do this, the do this, the don't do this, the do this. And I'm going to encourage us, all of us who want to follow Jesus, to reflect on this and ask the Holy Spirit to come and convict us Are there areas that we need to get our lives right in line with this passage? In the meantime, my job for that time (laughs) is to make sure that is not just an exercise in, oh dear, I'm having my finger wagged at me, but we understand the context and the life that is behind these instructions. Okay? That's where we're going. That's the plan. I have three things in a cliched fashion. Not that they're cliche, but three is often the point. So anyway, three things. What is new life in Jesus that we see in this passage? First thing is this. The new life in Jesus we see in this passage is a positive vision of life. And Rich mentioned this when he spoke on this uh, before the summer holidays. Again, like I said before, when I first read this passage, it was the negative instructions that jumped out on me. The wagging finger, don't do this. And there are negative instructions that don't do things here. Um, But if you notice, they were all paired with a positive instruction. Actually, it was the negative was there. Don't do this. Why? Because there's a better way to live. There's a positive way to live. So don't lie. That was in the passage. But what came next was it says this. Speak truthfully to one another. That's not just about being honest. That's about trying to help each other out, building trust, showing respect. Similarly, Don't use foul or abusive language. Or a bit later, chapter 5, verse 4, no obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes. Sounds a little heavy. Sounds a little kind of, well, no no rude jokes at all. But the point is not just don't do these. Look what it says after. Chapter 429, or in the middle of those two passages, let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. It's not just about not saying stuff. It's about, no, we build people up. We don't lower the tone all the time. We build people up. Well, this, don't get angry or bitter. Okay, yeah, that's the start, but what's the positive? Instead, it says in chapter 432, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, 
forgiving one another. It's not just we shouldn't steal either. Don't steal. Stop stealing. No, look what it says after. No, use your hands for good hard work and then give generously to others in need. This is a positive vision for life. This is not just a list of things to do. The image that Paul uses in this passage is a very simple image that I think is very, very helpful. It's the image of getting dressed. Okay? So he talks in terms of there's some things you throw off and there's some things that you put on. So, like when you get changed, you don't just take off your clothes and that's it. Except this summer sometimes, actually, because it was pretty hot. But if you try that about now and in the next month or so, you're going to get really cold. No, you take clothes off so you can put new clothes on. Really simple. So Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 22, he says, throw off your old sinful nature, involving all of those kind of actions, put on your new nature. It's a positive vision of life. Now, I could at this point be accused of being slightly selective in the passages that I've brought to your attention so far, because you might say, yeah, okay, but you have missed out the most puritanical instructions that seem to be in this passage. You have mixed out, Johnny, the classic Christian killjoy topic of sex, which did sneak in to, the, to what we heard. I wondered if anyone noticed that one. It was kind of, I asked Anna to read that bit really quickly, so you wouldn't, but you know, she didn't follow the brief, so you heard it. Oh, no, what, what are we going to do? No, I haven't talked about that yet. Um, and it, it's there. It's there in black and white. Chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, Paul addresses what's called sexual immorality and impurity. Sexual immorality. Now, even I've got to admit, that language immediately sounds super archaic and repressive. Nobody except Christians, speaks like that nowadays. No one talks about sexual immorality. And sexual immorality is one of the areas, that, or morality as a whole, is one of the areas I think that Christians are seen to be most backward, most restricting, and in most people's view, actually, well, many people's view nowadays, could be quite damaging, the Christian view upon sex. So what's going on with that bit? Am I just going to leave that out? No, I wanted to say that for its own special section today, actually. And uh, because there's, when those instructions are given, they also have a balance. They also have, don't do this, no sexual morality. That, that's not for you, but this. And the, this is found beforehand, okay? So chapter 5, verse 3, talks about throwing off sexual immorality and impurity. But if you go back a verse, you see what's meant to replace it. Why do we do that? Because chapter 5, verse 2 says this, live a life filled with love. For our sexual immorality, live an entire life filled with love. What's the link? It probably doesn't take a genius to tell. There is a link that's meant to be between sex and love, isn't there? And we, we would understand this. People still would call sex sometimes making love. The two concepts are definitely in the same ballpark anyway. But I think it would be very fair to say that sex's relationship to love has changed dramatically in our culture over the last 60 years. I don't know if you've noticed this. Particularly recently, I think, in our society, sex and love have become more and more separated into different things. And it is now largely assumed, I think, and in all conversations about sex, it's assumed this is, sex is really a leisure activity. It's a way to feel good about yourself. It's a way to blow off steam. That's what sex really is. It's more of a right that I have rather than a responsibility to another person. I think this became crystal clear during lockdown. And uh, you might have thought um, that having sex with anyone who was not in your household would have been kind of off limits in lockdown, seeing as, if I remember rightly, we were not allowed to get within two meters of anybody else. 
which I'm just doing the maths there. That sounds quite tricky. But apparently that, that wasn't, uh, <laughs> behind the scenes, that wasn't the instructions uh, being given because it was seen as an unrealistic expectation to stop people having sex with people outside the households. And so the Terence Higgins Trust, which is a sexual health charity, gave out guidelines on sexual activity during lockdown. And the BBC, Newsbeat, which seems to be like a young person's uh, bit of the... Uh, uh, of the BBC website, quoted this. Now, I quote from the, um, from the website, it says this. This was in lockdown. Um, if you are having sex with people outside of your household, it's important to limit the number of partners you have, the charity says. People should avoid kissing, wear a face covering, and choose positions that aren't face-to-face. -face. Seriously, this was the instructions given. The article's overall conclusion, and the title of the article is, Your Best Sexual Partner Is Yourself. I mean, just ponder that. That would have been absolutely unthinkable to be spoken. That would have been laughed out of the park even 30 years ago. But that's the, that is the kind of national guidelines that we're given now. And whatever you think of that advice, and maybe that advice is a degree of pragmatism and realism, you know what? You know, we could think different things of it. I think it shows something very, very striking. Those instructions are not picturing sex as an act that is particularly connected with love. If another person is involved, well, great, just make sure you don't actually look at them during the act. If not, no, your best sexual partner is yourself. This is massively different to the Christian view of sex as a committed act of self-giving love to another person. But you know what? Actually, it's polar opposite to the Christian vision of life in general. Because new life in Jesus involves living a life of love, but this isn't just don't have sex, don't do sexual immorality, life of love. No, love is actually the banner over everything. And that leads us to the second thing that this passage teaches about new life. Firstly, Christian new life is a positive vision of life. Secondly, Christian new life is about love. Almost full stop. It's defined by love. You see, love isn't here just presented as a positive to replace a negative, like some of the others. Love's the banner over all of the Christian life. Romans chapter 13, 9, the same author, Paul, puts this as clearly as he can. He says this, The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not cover, and what other, other commandment there may be, are summed up in this one rule. Love your neighbor as yourself. As these two come out of the water in a short while, going into these new lives, those lives will involve a million different decisions each day. There'll be a load of different things they have to embrace and a load of things they have to reject. But really, to step into the new life that Jesus has won for them, there is just one rule that covers all of it, and that is to love other people. Love your wife. Love your friends. Love your kids. Love people in your church. Love people outside of your church. You know what? Love everyone. And it doesn't cross out the other commands here, but it explains them. It gives them context. Not just the ones about sex, but all of them. So why shouldn't we steal? And why shouldn't we lie? And why shouldn't we sleep around? And why shouldn't we talk smutty? And why shouldn't we harbor grudges? Easy, because those things aren't loving. But why should we speak truthfully? Why should we work hard? Why should we share? Why should we forgive? Well, because those things are loving. And our new life in Christ, the life that's being celebrated today, is a life of love. And that's the second thing about this new life. But there's one more thing that I want to bring your attention to. And in my opinion, 
this is the bit that really gets my blood pumping. This is the one that I find most exciting, and it's kind of the weirdest one as well. So new life in Jesus is a positive vision of life. It's about love, but it's also about coming more like God. New life in Jesus is about becoming more like God. If we zoom out from the love bit I just quoted in 5 verse 2, we'll see this. Imitate God, therefore. Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Paul says a very similar thing a couple of verses before when he says, uh, put on your new nature, created to be like God. Wow, to be like God? Am I reading this correctly? That sounds blasphemous. Most religions would be like, you can't do that. You're not, he's way up there and you're way down here. You can't become like God. But no, that's the Christian life. And the new life that baptism depicts so powerfully is not just a life of positive action. It's not even just a life of love. It's a life of becoming progressively more like God himself. The image here uses the image of a parent. God is a parent. And it's a very common image. It's probably the, the main image that we're given in the Bible to, by which to understand God. But it's a slightly different way of looking at it. Usually when we think of God as our parent or our father, it would be to do with him protecting us or him appreciating us, or caring for us, or loving for us, or giving us an inheritance. There's all sorts of angles to God as Father. But here's a slightly different one. God as Father here is being used as an image of God as our role model, who trains us to become like him. The Bible tells us right at the very start that this is where things, this is where things God wanted to take them. We were made in God's image, it says in Genesis 1, in his likeness. It's mysterious, very mysterious. And big, big brains have thought about what that might mean for years. But what we can tell from that statement is in a very mysterious but a very profound way, we were made to be like God and to do some of the things that he does. But the Bible points out that through our sin, through the wrong decisions that we make, through our rebellion against God and decision to act on our own rather than under his, uh, his authority, that image becomes broken. Not completely broken, but kind of shattered and splintered and fractured. And that's where we find ourselves naturally. That's why we're so, we, life is death. It's not like it should be. We're sleepwalking. We're dead to the important things around us. I tell you what, one of the promises of Jesus that excites me so much, even having been a Christian for many, many years, is this promise that he says, as you follow me, I want to start restoring my image in you, Johnny. That's what he takes to every one of us, to restore that image again. Despite our weaknesses and our mistakes, we could again dare to say that we could become more like God once again and live in his footsteps. I think this sounds a bit un unattainable. Again, I think the image of the father and the child role model sometimes is beyond us a lot of the time. You think, I could never be, especially when you're a kid, I could never be like my dad. But actually, God knows this. And so what he does is he comes down to earth. He stoops down even further in the person of his son. I think for many of us, it's much easier for us to understand what it's like to become like our older sibling. And many of us, I know that we don't all get on well with our siblings all the time, but there's that, there is that feeling. If you have an older sibling, but I hope for many of us, they would have been an example to us. I want to be like my big brother. I want to be like my big sister. And Jesus is presented as our older brother in the Bible. So we, we imitate God and we 
what that means is we follow the example of Jesus. And that's why we love. That's what it says here. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. It's why we love, because he loved. And it's how we love. We look at what Jesus is like, how he spoke to others, how he interacted with each other, even how he acted when he went to the cross to die for us and give himself us, up for us. There is incredible dignity in the Christian calling. Dignity beyond anything that we could have asked for. Our creator would call us to somehow become like him. And I find that an incredibly exciting prospect. And you know what? I think this is why we celebrate today at things like this. We see when Dave and Phoebe say, I want to take hold of this new life. This is what they're talking about. You know what? As I close this, I don't, I don't want them to hog all the fun. Sorry, guys. Well, you, you can have some of the fun. But I want to bring us all the rest of us in on this. And it would perhaps be comfortable for us to end with the big picture. New life, let's celebrate. But I want to kind of hone down on the small print as we finish. As I said a few minutes ago. Because this passage is intensely practical, and I think it would be a shame, well, it would not be a shame, it just wouldn't be honest to go through this passage with all these instructions and say, no, we'll just keep it big picture. Now, I want to drill down on the detail here. Now, I need to be really clear that we don't misunderstand this, is this new life isn't just about us trying really hard to do some stuff and not do other stuff. That's definitely the case. No way we can live the Christian life, this new life, on our own. Absolutely no way we could become more like God through our own skill or natural goodness or anything like that. For a start, we, we need God's forgiveness because we've already fallen short of a load of his calling for our lives. And that involves saying sorry, and that involves accepting what Jesus did on the cross as a, a means of granting us that forgiveness. That's just the beginning. We also need daily to come to Jesus and allow him to keep acting in our lives. Like the words of these passages, shining his light on us. Actually, more than that, we don't just need his light. We don't need a torch to get through the darkness. We need his resurrection power through his spirit daily, hour by hour, every minute to do this. Now, to live this new life, we're totally dependent on God's help. That's true, but we still are involved. This is not passive. We are active in this process. There are things we throw off and there are things we throw on. And just as I hope daily, even hourly, for you guys who are Christians here, that you're saying to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, help me. I hope at the same time you're constantly thinking, what am I throwing off today? What am I putting on today? I'm coming back to this again today. I'm sorry for that, Lord. I want to go this way again today. That's the Christian life. So to close, I'd like to focus you on that to help you to do that. And practically what's going to happen, as I said a few minutes ago, is I'm going to read out the specific verses that talk about things uh, that God calls us to do, to put on, or to, to not do, to throw off, that are in this passage. And I'd like you to listen prayerfully and consider which of these apply to you and also what you're going to do about it, because this is a practical passage. And you might want to close your eyes and concentrate. That might work for you. You might want to get your phone out and write some notes. You might want to even, some of you a bit older, use paper and a pen. I don't know. I don't want to get carried away, but that's possible. You're allowed. All these things work. Whatever works for you, uh, basically. And so if you'd like to be involved, uh, let's consider these things. But first of all, I just want to pray for you. Because as I said, we need God's help more than anything in this. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your, I thank you for the specifics of the way you guide us. You are a light for our feet. You don't just give us slogans, uh, Lord. You, you tell us what to do. You lead us, Lord. Your, your word is a light for our path. 
And Holy Spirit, I ask you that you'd, you'd do something intensely uh, spiritual to us in our deepest parts of who we are right now, but also something intensely practical. Would you bring things to our attention that we can be in faith for changing in our lives as we just look back at this passage and pray, and pray about it together, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. Right, yo, I'm just going to read this to you. I'm gonna, then I'm going to stop, and you can just simply reflect, and you can talk to God in the gaps. That's what's going to happen. So I'm going to read through. Let's, get, let's start this one. So stop telling lies. Let us tell our neighbors the truth, for we are all parts of the same body. Is God challenging you on anything about truthfulness and lying at the moment? I just want you to think about that and do business with God. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry, for anger gives a foothold to the devil. You need to put steps in place to control your temper. Have you flown off the handle lately? Is that an area you need to think about? I'll give you a moment to consider that. Think about what that might involve practically. If you were a thief, quit stealing. Simple one, that, in, in understanding. By the ways you've been stealing. If, if so, God knows already. Clock it, say sorry, and ask for his help in changing. Instead, Use your hands for good, hard work. How are you doing with your work? And then give generously to others in need. Don't use foul or abusive language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. The way you use your mouth, does it lower the tone or does it look to build other people up? Let the Holy Spirit convict you. Come to him. Think about that, that area. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Do you need to take off bitterness today and put on forgiveness today? Are there those you need to forgive this morning? Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you. 
Does your sex life honor God and honor others? Does the way you think about sex or talk about sex honor God and honor others? If you want to be like Jesus, it's something you need to address. Again, I'll leave it with you to, to talk to God about that area. Instead, let there be thankfulness to God. Might sound like a small one after that barrage of stuff, but let's just spend one last on this last specific instruction. Are you speaking and acting thankfully for what God's given you? Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Lord, for all of us, wherever we're at, whatever we've done or we haven't done, whether we know you or not at the moment, I want to pray for every single one of us, for your powerful spirit to help us to live this new life that Jesus has won for us. Lord, would you call to us, each of us right now, and call over each of our lives, Lord. Arise, awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Amen.